I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. It is often difficult with some huge mega corporations and enabling politicians doing their best to make it nearly impossible to know exactly what is in the air we breathe, the water we drink, and even the ground we live upon. And that's a big deal because our health and survival depend on those elements being clean and free from toxins. Today's guest is Christina Marusik, an investigative journalist with Environmental Health News whose work over the past several years has focused on the real-life consequences of toxic exposure. Christina began her journalism career as a staff writer for MTV News and soon had bylines for pieces published in The Washington Post, CNN, The Advocate, and Slate, to name but a few. She gained more national exposure for her 2021 Environmental Health News four-part series called Fractured, The Body Burden of Living Near Fracking, which included research that has become a key piece of evidence in advancing policy change around the issue. She is co-president and co-founder of the Pittsburgh chapter of the National Association of LGBTQ Journalists and has received recognition and awards from the Society of Environmental Journalists and the Carnegie Science Center. In a reporting industry that has seen its challenges in the past few years, Christina was recently called out by a national journal as a writer who, quote, gives hope to the field. I couldn't agree more. Christina, thank you so much for being here today. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. So I want to dive right in and ask you a question about a story or really a four-part piece that you did in 2021 titled Fractured, the Body Burden of Living Near Fracking which was published to national acclaim, in the months that followed, it has become, I think, a key piece of evidence in lawmakers' efforts to urge Pennsylvania's governor to protect its residents, live close to fracking sites. Before we dive into that piece, can you give a brief background about what fracking has come to mean to rural communities across the country and to southwestern Pennsylvania specifically? I've been reporting on fracking for about three years. One thing I've learned that seems common to these rural communities where fracking is happening across the country is that people have this sense of a loss of control. A lot of folks who live in rural areas moved there to get away from like industrial activity and to find somewhere quiet and peaceful and idyllic. And then, you know, this industry has kind of crept in and created this industrial atmosphere in areas that formerly were pretty pretty sleepy and idyllic. So it certainly has had some well-documented mental health effects on folks who live in these rural communities. And it's also caused rifts in a lot of these communities where mm. some people are grateful for the industry and for the jobs it's created and maybe have personally benefited from leasing their mineral rights or from having family members who you know, have gotten good jobs in the industry. And then community members who are really concerned about what it's doing to their health and their kids' health and to, you know, their formerly idyllic rural homes. Yeah, it's interesting. When I first came back to the endowments about seven years ago when we were talking about these issues even then, I was repeatedly told, you all don't understand, this is an incredible boom for Pennsylvania. It's a huge benefit for 
our economy, and especially for rural folks. Uh, fracking companies promise jobs and economic stability to rural communities in particular. Your series, though, revealed another part of that equation, which is, well, first of all, questions about that, but also the health realities of families living near these sites. Would you tell us a little bit about what the tests were that you did, and were you surprised by how many people wanted to participate? Over the summer of 2019, over about an eight-week period, I collected one water sample from each household, and I collected two air samples for each person. So they wore personal air monitors that were attached to their bodies around the level at which they breathe. So they were close to mouth level. Since kids breathe air that's lower to the ground, these kinds of chemicals are heavier. So they actually tend to have a higher burden of exposure. So we wanted to do individualized air monitoring for small people and tall people to catch those differences. And then we also collected three urine samples over that period. We know emissions from fracking wells can be sporadic or often sporadic. So you might have days where the air is really clean and the emissions aren't too bad. And then you might have a day where, you know, there's like a big plume of harmful chemicals coughing off of a fracking well near your house. So we wanted to capture different periods of time, you know, kind of in the same, the span of the same summer to get a better sense of those differences. And I was surprised how much interest there was in this. There's been a lot more interest after the series came out too. I think because, you know, a lot of people who are living near fracking wells have a lot of questions and concerns about how it might be impacting their health. And I've heard from a lot of people too in the course of this reporting that sometimes they're made to feel crazy or paranoid for expressing those feelings. And so getting, you know, some concrete scientific testing that shows what's happening can feel like a relief, can feel kind of validating for people who have concerns about this. I am just a little surprised that we're being exposed to so much in the environment. Our children especially are being exposed to this stuff and we don't know how to stop it. Pretty invasive kind of thing to go through and it was hard, I thought, going through the study. At the same time, while it's like it's really better because hopefully that's something I can mitigate, you know, we can change to reduce some of that exposure. Like selling my house would be They're like, okay, well, we're moving because actually we're being exposed to tons of benzene, but you want it? (laughs) Do you want to live here? It's fascinating. I hadn't thought about the dynamic of feeling like something's going on that you think you know why, but not having the evidence to back it up. So I think that's one of the powerful things you did with these families was give them the tools for that. You do so much to bring the families alive in the in the series, but is there a story or experience you observed with one of the five families that particularly moved you as you were going through this reporting? There was one family in the study that was a grandmother and her two grand- grandkids who she's been raising since they were babies, and they were in a school district where a fracking well went in really nearby, I think within a half mile of the school when the kids were pretty little. And one of the kids became really sick. You know, they saw doctor after doctor and did all of this testing and just could not figure out what was wrong with her. Eventually, they learned that she had benzene poisoning and Mm. that she has a particular sensitivity to benzene. So benzene is a pretty nasty but also pretty ubiquitous chemical. So it causes cancer and other health effects, but it's also in vehicle exhaust and Mm. uh, industrial exhaust. It's kind of, you know, 
pretty present, but it's also known to be emitted in sometimes very high levels from fracking wells, especially when they're initially being drilled. And her illness kind of began and was at its worst during that initial drilling period of the well. And when she spoke out about this, it caused a huge rift in their community. That was one of those specific communities where, you know, a good portion of the community had leased their mineral rights and was getting some royalty checks from the industry. So they felt defensive and, you know, they were accused of making the whole thing up for attention. And then, you know, she'd have other parents and caretakers sometimes pull her aside and say, you know, actually my kid's been sick too and I'm really worried. But they they were made to feel sort of ostracized. And the child who was sick at the time I was doing this reporting was 15. And she lost friendships because she went over to someone's house to play and their parents sat her down and grilled her about this and asked if she was faking it and, you know, wanted Mm. medical proof. And, and, you know, she was like eight at the time. So she was mortified. How does an eight year old even respond to that? Right. She didn't know how to handle that or what to do. They were shouted at during community and school board meetings told to like leave town. It caused a lot of anxiety and initiated some depression for the kid. And they actually moved school districts to get away from all this. And then found out that they were still near a couple of fracking wells and were still being exposed to pretty high levels of some of these harmful chemicals, which was a little bit devastating that they had moved to try and get away from all of this. You know, I think that's part of why storytelling is so important, right? Because hearing these statistics is one thing, and then actually hearing what this teenager went through and was continuing to struggle with was really different, right? Made it feel much more immediate and urgent and real. What's been the reaction to the piece? Are you feeling at all that there's a shift happening in attitudes toward fracking? I hope there's a shift happening in attitudes towards fracking. The response to the piece has been... Big. So the, the families kind of immediately expressed that although it was difficult to find out that they were being exposed to these harmful chemicals in the place where they live, they also now felt kind of empowered to fight for their families and for their communities because they had been made to feel like maybe this was all in their head or maybe they were making it up and now they felt like they had, you know, some scientific evidence that were actually being exposed and the health problems we're having are likely a result of these exposures. And I've heard from a good number of policymakers who are interested in getting this kind of testing done at a statewide level. So I spoke with a staffer for one state legislator who's interested in proposing legislation that would require this kind of test by the Department of Health across the state, and that feels encouraging. Also, after the study came out, a group of 34 state legislators wrote a public letter to Governor Tom Wolf urging him to take action to protect Pennsylvanians who live near fracking wells. That was encouraging. The Wolf administration's response was less encouraging, (laughs) Um, sort of just general, you know, we care about the residents of the Commonwealth kind of statements. I'm a strong supporter of the gas industry, but I'm also a strong supporter of making sure we do it right. You don't believe that fracking is the cause of these cancers? 
I, I, I don't, but that's what we want to find out. We want to make sure that, that, that if there's something that is in that process that, that uh, is linked to this, we need to know that. This is something that we need to do. We need to understand the science. We need to make sure that, that if there's something we need to do differently, if there's something we can learn, let, let's learn that. The media response has been encouraging, too. The story got picked up by a number of other Pittsburgh and Southwest Pennsylvania outlets and then also national and a couple of international news outlets. I think part of what's so important about what you're doing is that you're capturing and telling the narrative of people who too often we don't hear from. We hear statistics about harm. We hear stories maybe about people who are suffering, but those stories rarely come alive. And it's important for them to come alive for us to see that they're associated with real human beings and, and not just disembodied statistics. That connects actually to something else you've said, which I'm curious about, which is that you believe that true, well-told stories have the power to change the world for good. I'm curious how you came to believe that and... What actually evidence you have that that is true? My background is actually in creative writing. I was really interested in storytelling, but I was also an activist, especially as an undergraduate. And so I wanted to find a way to use writing in a way that could help address some of these systemic issues I saw happening. <laughs> and I came out of grad school and kind of started my career right at a moment when, when there was this big shift happening in journalism, too, where, where suddenly people were much more interested in narrative journalism. And even first-person stories where someone wrote through a first-person perspective about how they were reporting on something and the questions they were asking and the experience of finding out the answers to these burning questions they have in a way that connected, really connected with people. So it made me realize, you know, that there, there was a path to telling true stories that were both compelling on a language level and also could have a big impact in the world. You know, I learned about all these examples of journalism making a huge difference in the world of stories where, you know, things that had kind of been happening in the shadows were uncovered and then legislation changed and policy changed. You know, one obvious example that's very well known because there's a movie about it is the movie Spotlight that documents the reporting that Boston Globe reporters did on child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, which obviously had a huge ripple effect, right? Then in communities across the country, this started being uncovered. And it kind of quickly became clear to me that investigative reporting paired with storytelling had kind of multiplied the power of, of both of those things and made stories that both resonated with people and connected with people and also had the potential to make the world a better place and, and start prompting meaningful changes. To innovate and change, people need to know two things. What's broken and how it can be fixed. The media does a good job covering the first half. In fact, most hard news today is about problems and crises. That kind of reporting is essential. But we believe it's time for journalists to get used to covering the other half of the story. Not just risks, but opportunities. And not just problems, but solutions too. I'm really interested in, in something called solutions journalism. You know, rigorous 
thoroughly fact-checked, thoroughly researched reporting that focuses on solutions to problems instead of just unearthing problems. And we all know that's an issue with when you're reading too much news, you get depressed mm-hmm. because it's mm-hmm. all about what's wrong with the world and the problems we face. Exactly. Um, and, and covering solutions with the same rigor that we cover problems is one way to help advance solutions. So that kind of perspective makes it its way into my reporting a lot. I hope that it does where, where I'm reporting on local issues here in Southwestern Pennsylvania, but I really try to make a point of looking very broadly at solutions. So what we've tried in the past here may not have worked, but are there places elsewhere where they found solutions we might not have considered and, and what do those look like? I think that's fascinating, and I, I haven't heard as much lately as I had years ago about the concept of solutions journalism, but you are so right that it is a concept whose time has probably come. In my reporting, there's a big section about what Colorado has done recently to regulate the industry. So Colorado last year did this huge overhaul of the way it regulates the industry and took a lot of steps that a lot of uh, health advocates in the state are really pleased with and think will go a long way toward protecting people who live near fracking wells. So those include moving the minimum setback for a fracking well from 500 feet from a school or home or hospital to 2,000 feet. And they did that based on their own science where they found that, oh, up to 2,000 feet away from a fracking well, we're seeing levels levels of pollution that could hurt people. So we're going to move the setback. In Pennsylvania, that's still 500 feet. They also are requiring a lot more air monitoring at sites so that they can take action more quickly if they find that, you know, spikes in emissions or leaks. They actually entirely changed the mission of the governing body that oversees oil and gas from being to foster oil and gas development to being to protect communities during our oil and gas development. So they had this big kind of shift in the way they're treating and handling and regulating the industry in Colorado that I think could be a real blueprint for Pennsylvania, where regulators here don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel because Colorado spent years and years and did lots of research and came up with a set of policies that are a lot more health protective than what we're doing in Pennsylvania right now. In 2020, you wrote a piece titled Climate Change Inversions and the Rise of Super Pollution Air Events. And I think here's an example of where you're calling attention to a challenge that we face. And it shared that for much of six days in December of 2019, residents of the Mon Valley, which is a cluster of townships along the Monongahela River, 20 miles south of Pittsburgh, endured some of the most polluted air in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about what is a super pollution event and what caused this one? A super pollution event here refers to emissions getting trapped close to the ground in a way that kind of drastically has the potential to drastically impact health. And during a temperature inversion, a warm air mass sits above a colder air mass and it traps pollutants that usually would be blown away by the wind closer to the ground. And Pittsburgh and Southwest Pennsylvania are especially prone to this because of our topography and our natural weather patterns where we have lots of hills and valleys. And so it's easy for pollutants to get kind of trapped in these valleys where they can't escape. But the last five years were 
the hottest that have ever been recorded on planet Earth. And inversions are becoming a lot more frequent in places that are topographically similar to this and also in places that don't usually see inversions because of the the shifts in weather and temperature. So when this happened here, we had a high level of emissions from some local polluting facilities, including U.S. Steel's Clareton Coke Works, and they got trapped close to the ground in a way that meant the air was unsafe to breathe for people who live there for several days in a row, and people reported, you know, these horrible smells, that the air smelled like rotten eggs and burning plastic and hospital waste, and they had to put out warnings saying that it was a code red range, so unsafe for everyone to breathe, everyone should stay indoors. And I think historically, in this region in particular, the language around these kind of events has sort of put the blame on the weather. And I think it's important to be aware that, you know, we're going to see more weather events that look like this. And if we want to prevent these super pollution events from happening, we need to take sort of preemptive action to reduce emissions when we know something like this is coming. Along the Monongahela River, 22 miles south of Pittsburgh, is the borough of Donora. Steel mills, sulfuric acid plants, heavy river traffic, and the freight yards. This is the way it was in October 1948, when an area-wide temperature inversion closed in. Hot, moist airs hung over the city, entrapping the cooler, stagnant air in the pockets below. No air could blow out, no air could rise. Donora was airtight. It took only two days for 6,000 people to become seriously ill and for 20 of them to die. Everybody can remember the Donora smog incident from the 1940s. There's almost a fatalism that gets repeated in the news about this, that this is part of having industry and it's part of, of having weather. What you're saying is, but hey, folks, weather is changing and it's going to be worse. When you present that case, what do you hear from industry about it? Not much, to be honest. You know, so far... I think we've had, certainly in the time that I've been reporting here, I've seen a lot of requests from community members to local industries to take these things into consideration and and cut back emissions during these events. And I think in this region in particular, we've learned repeatedly that if cutting back emissions is a voluntary measure, it's probably not going to happen because it costs money, right? Mm. These are companies that are accountable to shareholders in a way they're not accountable to their neighbors. You know, so locally, the local health department is working on legislation that would require industry to come up with a plan to reduce emissions when they anticipate one of these weather events, which is a big step forward. That regulation has been I think it was originally proposed in the 90s, so I think it's been 20 years in the making and sort of just starting to be solidified and and some local environmentalists still feel like they're kind of not stringent enough and rely too heavily on the goodwill of these industries rather than having clear, measurable, if this is coming, you have to reduce emissions X amount. Right now, it's much more like you have to give us a plan for what you're going to do, which also is 
I want to acknowledge that we have a small health department with a very big job here that is, you know, under-resourced and also still dealing with the pandemic. So um, understood understood that it's a a big job. They've got their hands full, right? Yes, they have a lot on their plate. You know, basically what, what is happening in that equation is that society is saying to companies that you can't hide behind the weather anymore which I think your point is that that's particularly important in the context of changing weather patterns due to climate change. You're working on a book about the doctors, researchers, and activists leading a nationwide movement to rethink cancer prevention strategies through the lens of toxic exposures, which suddenly is an issue that we're hearing a lot more about these days. The book is slated for publication by Island Press in 2022, and I'm Curious, what motivated you to write this book? What sparked the idea? The book actually grew out of my reporting on cancer rates and air pollution in southwest Pennsylvania. And an editor at Island Press reached out and asked if I'd be interested in expanding that work into a book with a national focus. So I'm thinking of the book as a portrait of this national movement to rethink cancer prevention through the lens of widespread toxic exposures. So I talked about solutions journalism earlier, and this book is really a solutions-driven book looking at the people who are deeply engaged in trying to cut the amount of cancer-causing chemicals we're all exposed to in our our everyday lives as a means of fighting cancer. So I'm telling those stories through profiles of people who are doing that work. So the book will be narrative-driven. It includes a lot of personal stories from people who are living with cancer and fighting cancer, and then also people like Ami Zoda, who is a researcher studying toxic chemicals and personal care products and how they impact women of color in particular. And say Obat Witherspoon, who is the head of the Children's Environmental Health Network that does lots of work related to children's health, but they're also, you know, really working hard to get cancer-causing chemicals out of daycares. And people like Bill Walsh, he's the head of the Healthy Building Network, and he's trying to get cancer-causing chemicals out of building materials. It's very inspiring to talk to people who are just day in, day out working to push solutions that are system-based. I think that I'm really interested in shifting the discussion about protecting the environment away from individual actions and toward systemic change. In the 50s, a bunch of beverage companies like Coke and Pepsi and Anheuser-Busch and a bunch of others, they formed this nonprofit called Keep America Beautiful. They made that now pretty infamous crying Indian commercial in the 70s. (laughs) That group put out that commercial that on its face looked like this kind of neutral public service announcement and looked kind of benevolent. Like we are all individually responsible for litter and waste. And that if we recycle and meticulously recycle (laughs) our plastics, then the planet is going to be okay. But that's actually now kind of cited as the first example of corporate greenwashing, where they were behind the scenes lobbying against legislation that would have made them more responsible for creating all this disposable plastic in the world and could have helped mitigate the plastic crisis we face now. And there's a similar story with the carbon footprint. I just learned this recently that BP invented the carbon footprint. They invented that term in the early 2000s. So that they could make it your responsibility to lower your carbon footprint. What size is your carbon footprint? Ah, the carbon footprint's there. That I don't know. Whatever it is, 
the whole population of the world, make that a very, very big number. How much carbon I produce? Is that it? You mean the effect that my living has on the earth in terms of the products I consume? More than 70% of global greenhouse gas emissions are caused by 100 companies, including BP. (laughs) So if we took even a sliver of the energy that we expend trying to lower our carbon footprint and be perfect for cyclers and instead used it to advocate for systemic change, we would get a lot further, a lot faster. And so I'm also thinking about that with regards to the book with cancer prevention. You know, right now, a lot of cancer prevention prevention initiatives sit, focus on individual lifestyle behaviors. So don't smoke, exercise, eat healthy. And then right. when people get cancer, that also leads to this kind of like blame the victim mentality where people feel like, what did I do wrong? You know, mm-hmm. how did I cause this to happen to myself? And actually, the data and the scientific literature are very, very clear that if we can reduce the amount of cancer-causing chemicals we're all exposed to through air pollution, through our drinking water, through the personal care products we use, through the food products we consume, fewer people get cancer. I think it's such a powerful point you're making. And I love the fact that you're doing it, by the way, in the context of this toxics issue. You know, this is an issue that Teresa Hines started talking about probably 25 years ago. And, you know, I think it is an area of work that has suffered from precisely this dynamic of people thinking through, well, lifestyle choices are the real reason, you know, so smoking, obesity, so forth and so forth. But we are we are literally swimming in a soup of, of environmental toxins, most of which have never been tested for their impacts on the human body. And absent some sort of greater awareness and visibility, we'll never change that. So that leads me to a question, which is that now you're talking about a challenge that is even harder to describe scientifically than the virus that we're we're all experiencing in the context of the COVID pandemic, which is a pretty straightforward story when you think about it. We know what viruses look like. We know what this one is. We actually have a vaccine for it. And yet there's fully a third of the U.S. population that actively refuses to believe what public health officials are telling us needs to be done in a circumstance like this. How are you finding the fortitude to continue to tell scientific stories? And what gives you hope that they will ultimately persuade the public? I've kind of always approached telling scientific stories as if I am a kind of translator. You know, I read a scientific study that's really dense and full of jargon. And then I talk to the researcher who conducted it and I confirm that my understanding is correct. And then I try to explain it in language that is accessible to everyone. I do think the pandemic has created new challenges when it comes to that, right? Like the internet has created this phenomenon where everyone thinks they are a researcher, right? Where everyone Mm -hmm. thinks like, well, maybe this vaccine isn't safe. So I can go online and Google and find five people who agree with me. So that must be valid. And so it's increasingly difficult to 
you know, convey the difference between <laughs> real science and, and real journalism and the many opinions that float around in the internet. You mentioned, you know, the craft of journalism earlier, and I, I hired an independent third-party fact-checker for the Fractured series because I wanted every single thing to be really airtight, and that process is incredibly tedious. You know, it took two months, and literally every single sentence in the story was picked apart and you know, you said this person lives 30 minutes away from Pittsburgh. And actually, if they drive this way, it's 35 minutes. It's like this level of attention to detail and obsession over getting the facts right that most people don't know is going into journalism. And then I think the same thing about science. I've had even talking to family members, family members who've said things to me like, oh, well, I don't think that science is valid because who knows if they accounted for X, Y, Z. And I say, oh, actually, we do know that because they have to account for that. And it's in the study. One path forward is to increase the amount of literacy people have, both about what goes into good journalism and how to look for and find and recognize good journalism and what goes into good science and how to look for and find and recognize good science. I suspect you and I could keep going on this subject for hours, but we're running out of time. And I, I think that's probably a good place to And other than for me to ask, the name of our podcast is We Can Be. And I'm curious what you think we as a community, country, and world can be. We can be healthier. We can be more directly engaged with the decisions that impact our health and uh, happiness and wellness every day than we often think we can be. Christina mentioned that one thing she has witnessed as a common element among those she's interviewed for her stories is that they often have a sense of a loss of control. They are made to feel paranoid or crazy for expressing what they see happening to their own health. Her work is helping them regain a sense of control by giving them a voice and by providing data that backs up their stories. They are not crazy, they are simply experiencing reality. At the same time, she is empathetic about the initial financial opportunities that the fracking industry seems to provide to rural communities that have struggled in recent decades. But her reporting is making it crystal clear just how much is at stake, and she is doing it in a way that all of us non-scientists can understand. Christina's journalism is, in her words, a way of reporting that helps society learn how to fix itself. It's not advocacy or fluff or good news. It's forward-looking, serious, and critical. And it is giving us the information we need to make decisions about our health and about what abusive corporate practices can do to our environment. I love and share her belief that true, well-told stories have the power to change the world for good. And that is exactly what Christina is doing. Christina.